Welcome back to the 141st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how college students are claiming disability in order to get some advantages in their education, how disability claims in general have gone up under the Biden administration in order to get economic benefits, and a final story talking about how the minimum wage hasn't been raised federally for a long time and discussing the causes and effects. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So are we as a society becoming more aware of different disabilities or are we becoming more aware of the benefits that we get from claiming those same disabilities? I think there could be an argument made for both. I think both can be true at the same time. But as someone who grew up with a lot of friends and a lot of people around me who started claiming disability, and also as someone who was performing not the best in school and then went and got checked and found out, oh, he has dysgraphia, he has ADHD, and then using the certain benefits that it gave me in high school, some against my will, just so we're clear, but still some were used like extra time on tests or being able to use a computer for taking notes or submitting assignments. I've been a part of this culture. I've seen how this has gone down. So it's interesting when I read this first article and this discussion was brought up into the mainstream. And I think it's one that we definitely need to have. But instead of talking about it in the abstract, throw your comments down in the comment section about this daily debate, and let's jump in to the first article. This one comes from the American Conservative with the title, Metrocalculating Malingerers. So, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of fancy words for basically saying people that are taking advantage of the system. They are calculating what they can get out of it and how they can take advantage of some of these benefits. And it's an interesting one. This is in the context of college. And a lot of college students, the article is arguing, are starting to realize that by claiming certain disabilities, they get certain advantages in the classroom or with certain assignments. And you can't necessarily blame them, in my opinion. If you set up a system that has certain incentives, if you set up a system where if you claim that you are of a group that is underrepresented and therefore you will have a higher likelihood of being chosen for something, then why wouldn't people try to stretch the truth and be able to claim that they are a part of that group that helps their chances of getting into that certain program? Or if you have different programs and incentives in place that allow students to use a little bit more time on tests, maybe have certain advantages when it comes to their test taking instead of having to do everything on paper and handwrite everything. Maybe they're able to type it out because they can see it better. It helps with their dyslexia. Maybe it helps with dysgraphia. So when you have these incentives in place, why wouldn't people take advantage of it? Now, of course, you would probably have some people argue, well, we should be better than that. We should have people that don't want to take advantage of the system. But what ethic or moral do you want to have be stronger in our society? the absolute ability or the absolute strength of principle or the idea that I need to get ahead, I need to win no matter what, I need to be the best, even if I have to use certain exceptions. That's a value assumption. It depends on who you are. Some people want to put principle first. Some other people want to win no matter what. 
And the people that are willing to take advantage of the system, they're the ones that want to win no matter what. They're going to use whatever they can, not necessarily breaking the system, not trying to ruin it, but whatever means they can use within the system, they're going to use. So let's jump to the quote from the article. Quote, more and more college students are claiming to be disabled. A piece making this observation by Professor Colin Aaron went viral over the weekend. Aaron wrote the piece after she and her colleagues observed that more students were claiming disability and consequently were receiving accommodations, such as extra time on tests, private rather than in-person class presentations, and extended deadlines. The students making these claims were not typically wheelchair-bound or otherwise physically impaired. Most claimed to suffer from psychological conditions, such as anxiety or attention deficit disorder. When Erin looked at the state and national data, she found that the number of students claiming disability had increased exponentially. The number of college students claiming disability in New York, for example, rose by nearly 30,000 between 2015 to 2022, end quote. So this is another aspect of the argument that the author will go on to make, which is these are disabilities that are not physically obvious. You can't necessarily tell if someone is outwardly anxious all the time. Now, I would that's what the author would argue. I would argue that's not necessarily true. If someone's really anxious, that they really have ADHD, then you'll be able to tell by the way that they go about interacting with the world whether their disorder is really that bad or their disability is really that bad. But the author is saying here, these are all mental so at the end of the day, even if you don't necessarily display all of the outward symptoms, you could still claim that you have them even though you don't. And I think this is a, another issue that we have in our culture overall, which is we take people at their words. If someone claims that they are of a different gender, if someone claims that they are of a particular racial group, rather than asking for evidence, we have to take their subjective self-opinion into account, and we have to say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we believe you. Your truth is the truth that we are all going to abide by. So I think if the author was to take that tact and really attack it from that direction, rather than just saying that these students are being taking advantage of a corrupt system, I think that would be even more pertinent and even more relevant to the more cultural phenomenon that is going on right now, which is subjectivity, subjective worldviews, and thought processes, processes are meant to be taken as objective and objectively true. And that is something that will eventually lead to the degradation of our society overall. So the author also throws these into a very particular category. They're not physical disabilities, they're learning disabilities. And here's what they have to say about this. Quote, the overwhelming majority of those students were labeled as having learning disabilities, attention deficit disorder, anxiety, or depression. Sufferers of those and other potentially marginal conditions are made eligible for accommodations when Congress amended the Americans with Disability Acts in 2008. The amendment's inaugurated section, which is 504, which enables students to claim disability and access accommodations for an array of conditions, many of which would not have met the court's substantial impairment resolution threshold in Toyota versus Williams. It is possible in individual cases that a condition such as anxiety and ADHD could be so severe as to warrant an accommodation, though the circumstances in which that's true are rare. In any case, such conditions cannot be verified in the way that physical disabilities like quadriplegia can, a fact that wealthier students and their families have appropriately 
or apparently taken advantage of, end quote. And I think this is also something that you do see and I do think is a very valid criticism, which is families that are a little bit better off and can go to doctors that can give these diagnoses, even if it's a really small, not severe case of ADHD, they can go to these doctors that can pick up on more nuanced things or maybe willing to give them a sympathetic diagnosis in order to make sure that their child can get certain advantages. Maybe they don't like the way that their kid is performing in school and they'd say, oh, no, it can't just be that Jimmy's not trying hard enough. No, no. Our beautiful, beautiful boy could not be intentionally not paying attention or could not be the most stellar student. There's obviously something wrong with the school. He obviously has a learning disability. Obviously, he has a hard time engaging in the material. It's not just the fact that Jimmy doesn't want to be there and isn't giving his all and he's not trying. So, and then these parents who love their kids, they take them to these very special doctors and they can have these things diagnosed. And I think there's a valid argument here. I think while I'm kind of extending the author's argument a little bit and digging into it a little bit more, I think that that'd be a valid tack that you could take because I noticed that my private school that I went to, a lot of different kids were coming with diagnoses of ADHD. Not everybody. I mean, not even a majority. But you did start to see the numbers increase in the later years that I was there. And then the inverse is true, though, is that because more parents were realizing they could take advantage of it or because more parents were becoming more aware of the fact that ADHD was a serious thing that this generation was dealing with. Maybe it's the former. Maybe it's the latter. I think there's a a dual part to this conversation, which is, yes, of course, maybe we are becoming more aware of things that are beyond normal. Maybe we're starting to become more sensitive to these sort of different disabilities. But also, is it if that's the case, if we're just becoming more aware of them now, then what do we do in the past? Oh, we didn't recognize them, or at least we didn't give anybody special treatment, and we made sure that they found ways to deal with it themselves. Maybe instead of going on to be a collegiate scholar where they have to read for five hours at a time and they can't sit there and read the whole time because they're ADHD, they go into a craft where they can constantly use their hands and engage with the thing that they're doing. Or maybe they go and become a plumber, which they could make a good amount of money on. Maybe these different disabilities actually funnel people into jobs that would be better for them or career paths or just lifestyles that would be better for them rather than trying to change the entire system in order to fit the person, the person adapts to fit the system. So I think that's also part of this conversation. And that's why I think when we have this idea that, oh, well, we're just becoming more aware of these different disabilities. Yes, we are becoming more aware of them. But does that mean that we have to completely alter how the system works in order to include them? No. We have to acknowledge that they're going to have different standards than other people. That doesn't mean we change the standards. That means that we change what this person is aiming for, rather than saying that, ah, yes, you will become the epitome of speech memorizers. You will become the best person ever at A, B, C, or D. You say, well, hey, with your ADHD, I mean, take it into account. You can strive for those things. You can come up with different tactics in order to be able to do those to the best of your ability. But also, remember, maybe you're better suited for some of these jobs over here. And maybe that's the way we should go about it, rather than trying to warp everybody else and possibly bring down standards or impart negative effects on other students when we're trying to adjust in order to accommodate these students with these different disabilities. But that's just a 
my opinion on the matter as someone with ADHD and dysgraphia. And let's be clear, I think both of them are very, very minor. Now that I'm a little bit older and I have different coping mechanisms in order to deal with both of them, I would say that they are infinitesimally small in their effect on my life. But maybe when I was a little bit younger, they I hadn't created those coping mechanisms yet and it would have been beneficial to know what I had to deal with from the very beginning. Maybe. But I'll tell you now, it doesn't have to be an end-all, be-all. It doesn't have to be a pigeonhole that you're stuffed in. Oh, you have ADHD. Oh, you have dyslexia. So we have to accommodate you and treat you this very particular way and make sure that everything is better for you. No, no. You can overcome it through pure force of will and through learning how to adapt just like we've done over generations upon generations upon generations. Maybe instead of being like the other kid, you have to work a little bit harder. You have to read a little bit longer. You have to take a few more breaks, but you're still going to have to do the work. Maybe you have to put in a little bit more work than some of the other people, some of the more naturally gifted people that don't have these learning disabilities. Sure, but does that mean that not putting in that work should be an option where we actually make it a little bit easier for you through some of these accommodations. So it actually, even though you're going to do a little bit less work or maybe the work's a little bit easier, you're still going to do three hours worth of work. Do we want equal outcome or do we want equal opportunity? Do we want the same thing to be presented to these students, no matter what their learning disabilities are? And maybe some students have to work a little bit harder and some other ones don't. This is naturally true even if we're not talking disabilities. There are the naturally gifted students who only have to do the homework for one hour, and then the other people that have to grind for three hours and get the, in order to get the same amount of homework done. We can't accommodate everybody. We can't change the entire system for every single person. And I think that by lowering the standards or making it easier for people with these different intellectual or learning disabilities as we put them, it actually incentivizes people who may not even have those disabilities in order to say, well, no, no, I do have these disabilities because I want to take the easy track. Rather than saying, hey, no, everybody is going to do the exact same work. I'm sorry if it's harder for some people. Just like math is harder for some people and English is harder for some people and the vice versa is true. Some people are really good at math and it'll take them a little bit of time. Some people are really good at writing and it'll take them a less amount of time. We can't completely warp the standards because next thing you know, we're going to be individualizing everything for everybody. And until we have personal AIs to teach everybody, that is going to be extremely untenable. So these systems where kids can take advantage of these disability claims, it is you know a little disheartening because it makes me feel like we're trying to really undercut Americratic standards. We should present the same thing to everybody. And whoever comes out on top, whoever is the best at any of those given tasks, that person should move forward and try to take that on as a profession or try to implement some of those skills or use those skills that they obviously have because they're doing a good job on these different projects, homeworks, or different assignments. They should take those skills and use them in the real world rather than trying to cut a path through the assignment, you know, take the easy road. That's not going to help you in real life because there's not always an easy road. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there are disability packages at companies, but sometimes there aren't, and you're not going to be able to change that. No matter how much you want to be a engineer at NASA, if you didn't take all the hard engineering program classes because, or you failed out of them because they wouldn't accommodate your disability, well, sorry, you're not going to find an easy path to becoming a NASA engineer. You're just going to have to put in the work, and you're going to have to try hard. All right, so speaking of another form of disability, this next story comes from FEE Stories. 
disability claims are increasing at a record pace under Biden. Why? So first, to really understand part of the context of this story, we need to talk about unemployment because disability is a form of an unemployment benefit. So we need to talk about the unemployment statistics that are currently going on underneath the Biden administration. Quote, America under President Biden has better employment numbers than the America of 1984 when President Reagan ran Morning in America ads touting the economy, said David Dowd, a former political strategist for Washington W. Bush and MSNBC. The thing about statistics is they can be deceiving. Quote, lies, damned lies, and statistics, to paraphrase, paraphrase a British statesman, Benjamin Disraeli, a closer look at the government data reveals that labor participation rate, which has been declining for decades, is at its lowest in the last 45 years if you exclude the pandemic. More on why in a minute. So how does this data mesh with the White House figures, which show 13 million added jobs and an unemployment rate of 3.6%? The answer is surprisingly simple. Government data show that there has been considerable job growth since 2020, with 130 million total jobs in April 2020 and 156 million in June of 2023. But almost all of that job growth involved replace jo replacing jobs that were raised during COVID-19. There were 152 million total non-farm jobs prior to lockdown. In, or, in other words, the Biden is, administration has taken credit for jobs that are primarily returning after huge swaths of the economy were shut down. So, oh, well, that's a, the end of the quote, by the way. So why is this important? One, it shows that the Biden administration, when they are claiming that they're having this massive job uptick, they're not lying in that, yes, there are a large uptick of jobs. But if you put it in its greater context before the COVID-19 pandemic, when a lot of jobs were lost, are we actually any higher than we were then? I mean, roughly 4 million jobs than before the pandemic. So, you know, we're up 4 million jobs. That's still, that's still pretty good. You know, we can't fault Biden for that. But that doesn't mean that all these extra jobs are created just from his policy. They're created from the economy opening back up. So they're trying, they're trying to highlight here that he's being a little bit disingenuous when he's talking about the overall benefits of Bidenomics. So how does this really affect what's going on with disability claims? Or at least why is there a idea that the unemployment is doing so, so well, and yet we still have lots of complaints from people that, oh, I don't want to get a job, I can't get a job, or because of certain long COVID symptoms or because of this thing that I got during the pandemic like PTSD, they're claiming disability. Quote, there are a multitude of reasons more people are choosing not to work. More family house are, families are homeschooling. A trend that took off during the pandemic is likely one reason. Lower real wages may be another factor. Perhaps some workers are refusing to return to the workforce because they do not want to get vaccinated or wear a mask, as some businesses still require. There are government-created poverty traps, which occur when poor people lose support payments when they earn more income, which can discourage work. And of course, more working-age people are able to retire early. All of these factors likely play a role, big or small, in the weakened labor participation. 
but as we have clear data on one front that sheds light on the matter. Disability claims are soaring, economist Peter Still Ownge recently tweeted. Quote, a big part of that impressive unemployment rate, if you're living on disability, you are no longer counted, end quote. So this is where you can kind of see the two things coming together. The unemployment rate is looking really, really good. We're at a really low rate. But also, disability claims are going up. And when you actually get on those disability programs, you are no longer counted as being unemployed. Because the unemployment rate looks at the amount of eligible workers that, or the amount of people that are actually eligible to work and then subtracts the people that actually are eligible to work and are working. So then we get the amount of people that are eligible to work but aren't working. When you're on disability payment, well, one of those criteria is gone. You are no longer eligible to work, so they can actually take you out of the data. So that's why we don't actually see a lot of this disability claims or a lot of these people that are on disability. That's why they're not necessarily present in the unemployment rate statistics. So that can be a little bit deceiving when you see unemployment staying at this exact same rate, but a lot of people are getting more disability. So how much is this increase actually? How I don't want to say how bad is the problem because some people probably knew deserve disability, but there are probably a lot of freeloaders taking advantage of the system, just like we talked about in the first article with college students taking advantage of the incentives that they have or are given in college. So let's talk about the data. Quote, in January 2021, there were 28, wow, 28,851,000 disability claims. In June 2023, that figure reached 34,152,000, an increase of 15% in just 30 months, the fastest increase on record. Data goes back to 2008. There are undoubtable various reasons disability claims are surging, but the biggest one might be related to long COVID, COVID symptoms that continue or develop long after initial infection. Quote, the bottom line is that long COVID is why the labor force participation rate has not recovered to pre-pandemic levels, even in a situation where wage growth is solid. Torsion Slock, the chief economist and partner at the Apollo Global Management, wrote in a note earlier this year, can workers even collect a disability for long COVID? Apparently so. The report suggests that the Biden administration has been working to make it easier to do. Quote, the Biden administration has already taken some steps to try to protect workers and keep them on the job, issuing guidance that makes clear that long COVID can be a disability and relevant laws would apply. MPR, M, not N, MPR News reported in 2021. End quote. So we can see here that Biden's making it easier for people to claim that they are on disability. Even if you still have a long sniffle, maybe you have a little bit of a heart issue that developed from COVID, or maybe you can't smell anything. So you have long COVID. You could claim disability, which is actually going to help boost his unemployment numbers if more people get on the program who don't want to work anyway or having a hard time finding a job if they go on disability, then instantly they're taken out of the unemployment statistics. So it makes it look better for Biden. So this is really why it's important to have this conversation, not just to highlight that some people are taking advantage of these programs more and they could be being lazy and some people could actually need it, but also to note that it has a political advantage as well as an economic advantage, or sorry, a political advantage compared to an economic disadvantage. So this is why you need to keep your eye out and Pay attention to those statistics when they come out from either party. If they say, oh, yeah, we have all these jobs 
that we're bringing in and it's causing employment to go down to this or this statistic equals this. Remember, there's always more information that you can glean from that. There's always information that a politician is probably leaving out no matter what side they're on, no matter how right they believe they are or how close to the truth they are. They're probably admitting some facts to make it look even better for themselves. And it's just interesting when you hear Biden going around talking about all this Bidenomics talk and then you start to break it down and realize that oh, his unemployment numbers wouldn't be as good. We would have an extra, let's do the really quick math here, nearly 5 million people that would be in the unemployed and eligible to work category if they hadn't joined the disability roles in the last year. So, interesting data. Keep it in mind. And let's jump to our last story that comes from Common Dreams. An abomination. July, or sorry, this July marks 14 years since the last federal minimum wage increase. So yeah, you heard that right. 14 years since we've increased the minimum wage. And some people that are listening who may be from Virginia are like, wait, no, no, we just we just increased the minimum wage like last year. What do you mean? Um, that's why they really specify federal here rather than state. A lot of different states have pushed up the minimum wage. A lot of different states have also not pushed up the minimum wage. But that is the beautiful thing about a federalist system. You can address these issues on a state-by-state basis based on the cost of living. In Virginia, and let's be clear, I'm, I'm still kind of in or out on this whole minimum wage. I think that raising the minimum wage increases prices around the area and so on and so forth. But I also understand that at some point, if the, whoa, the employers are not fully responding to the price of living for their employees, then maybe they should be made to raise the the wage. I'm still kind of in and out on this one. I tend to side towards providing the employers the discretion in order to pay their better employees more and their other employees less, but that's besides the point. But that's the beautiful thing about our federalist system is that we can do this on a state-by-state basis. If the standard of living in Virginia is really high, and in order to entice people to actually come here and be able to live in Arlington or even some of the other Northern Virginia cities to provide them a wage that actually will enable them to live if they're relocating from another state, then employers are going to have to pay them a little bit more. And if they don't, then people won't actually come to the state. So that's a natural market mechanism to increase wages in particular areas, not just even on the state level. But let's just say that on average, employers in Virginia are not providing enough for their employees to live. The state government can come in and say, hey, okay, is outrageous at this point. We need to raise the minimum wage from blank dollars to blank dollars. And because Virginia is smaller than the entire United States and there are a lot more specific markets that a Virginia Congress, and, or in our case, House of Delegates, and Senate can analyze rather than the federal government trying to take into account the entire United States, they can be more effective and they can have a more prudent judgment on what the minimum wage in the state should be in order to help everybody out while not completely lambasting the employers who may leave their state if they raise the minimum wage too high. So that's why I think a federalist system where the states are making these kind of choices is better. But I do want to bring this article to the forefront because there are some interesting arguments or interesting quotes that come out of this article that I think at least should be brought up and had put into the middle of the discussion. And not that I think this is going to propel itself online, not that I think that everybody's going to listen to this podcast and I'm going to bring this story to light. No, but for the people that do care and do listen to our episodes, I think this is an important topic that I want to bring up. 
So our first quote comes from the very beginning of the article. Quote, the federal minimum wage in the United States would be $42 an hour today if it rose at the same pace as Wall Street bonuses in recent decades. Now, yes, that is a really crappy metric to use because if more funds flow into Wall Street, even if the rest of the economy isn't doing well, those bonuses are going to go up anyway. But, you know, I'll leave aside my really dumb criticisms. Quote, but it hasn't. Monday marks 14 years since the last federal minimum wage increase, the longest stretch without a boost since the late 1930s, when the national wage floor was first established. Since 2009, the federal minimum wage has been stuck at $7.25 per hour, pay that currently is not livable in many states in the U.S., while dozens of states, cities, counties have raised their minimum wages since the fight for 15 movement began in 2012. 20 states still have wage floors in line with the minimum, which are at its lowest value in the early seven decades amid the elevated inflation. The minimum wage was designed to create a minimum standard of living to protect the health and well-being of employees. The AFL-CIO, the largest federation of nations in the U.S., said Monday, 725 an hour in 2023 is a poverty wage, end quote. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. Imagine you are earning 725 an hour. So, let, you know, I'm going to pull up my calculator very, very quickly here. So let's say you're making 725 per hour. You are going to work, what, 40 hours a week, right? And then you're going to get two paychecks during a week. So we'll multiply that by two. And then, so you're making $580 a month. I'll tell you now, even in some of the cheapest areas, you're not going to find apartments that are lower than, I mean, in the cheapest, cheapest areas, you'll probably find apartments that are $400 an hour if you're sharing a bedroom or sharing the apartment with two or three other people. So what, that leaves you 180 to buy food? Yeah, that is really, really low. But maybe some of these other places have bonuses. Maybe you actually make more from commission. By simply saying that a lot of places still pay minimum wage, it doesn't take into effect other benefits that they may be providing. Providing now, some companies are just paying you seven twenty-five an hour, and some people have to pick up multiple shifts. Maybe they want to actually work overtime so they can get that pay in a half. But it is most definitely an interesting conversation to be had when you look at all the other states that have increased their minimum wage, and either they have a higher standard of living and therefore they increase their minimum wage, or they are getting a higher standard of living because they've increased their minimum wage and they've been able to entice better employees in order to come into the state. I think there could be an argument made for either side of that coin. But, you know, it's an interesting conversation, and it definitely is something that, while a lot of people may not necessarily agree that there should be a price floor and that the employer should pay people what they're worth rather than what the government is telling those employers the employees are worth, I think it's at least important that we bring up this conversation and do acknowledge that not much has moved on this issue, and there still are other states that have not increased the minimum wage. I don't think that it should be done on a federal level. I think it should be done on a state level, and maybe these other states should think about increasing their minimum wage, or maybe they should think about outright abolishing it and then enticing lots of good employers to 
bring jobs back to the state and give their most productive employees higher wages to incentivize employees to be productive. Maybe that's something they should consider. Uh, like I said, my thoughts on this one are still all over the place. I haven't come to a full conclusion. So if you're thinking back and saying, wow, Alex, you're you're really intellectually inconsistent on this one. You're flip-flopping. Yes, I am flip-flopping. No doubt about that. But I think it's a conversation that needs to at least be brought up and talked about in the main. All right, let's jump to our final article, which is our daily delight, which comes from One Green Planet. So adoption, it's one of those beautiful things, and it's reassuring to see that we are not the only species that do it. Quote, recently a rare sight was, has warmed wildlife officials' hearts. They observed the adoption of one bear cub by her aunt. End quote. You know, and it's always reassuring to see when family members step up and they can really help out the rest of their family when the time comes. Quote, the cubs stayed with their aunt, Bear 910, and the younger cousin. The adopted cub has even been observed nursing the bear, nursing Bear 910. The new family appears to have bonded well and sleeps in fish and eats together. All right, that's all that. If you want to see any of the photos or videos, you can find the link in the description below the like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Podcast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as a Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.